The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Please shut down the country now. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Before we begin, it is never too late or too frequent to thank the brave people on the front lines of this pandemic. There are, of course, the janitors and others who help maintain hygiene and clean up after the nurses who risk their own lives to save their patients and protect the doctors who risk their own lives treating patients, all of them often without the protective gear that normal hospital protocol demands. Same for the paramedics and other first responders as they, along with the doctors and nurses, fall ill or continue to work in fear and separated from their families. 911 calls in New York have lately exceeded the number of emergency calls on and right after 9-11. Our heroes now include armies of volunteers and the people who stock and prepare and deliver our foods and medicines. Even entertainers have volunteered their talents to help us through this. We thank them all from scientists to sanitation workers, and, of course, the janitors. Speaking of scientists, this has not been a good week for those who don't believe in them. Barry Sluter's cheeks were red, but not because he'd been out in the intense Florida sunshine. Barry and other University of Tampa students were forging ahead with spring break earlier this month, the publicly known spread of the new coronavirus be damned. Either on TV or online, millions of Americans watched a slightly tipsy Barry Sluter tell a TV reporter, if I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let this stop me from partying. Barry has now stopped partying and has publicly apologized for saying something that could threaten the health and lives of his loved ones. Barry and his fellow spring breakers are not back in class now as they normally would be because at last count, at least five of his classmates have tested positive for COVID-19. With spring break two or three weeks behind us now, 28 University of Texas students have tested positive after mingling on the beaches of Mexico. At Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, a conservative school accredited in liberal arts, President Jerry Falwell Jr. called the coronavirus fears overblown and called his students back to their classes. Now, at the Christian University his father founded, over a dozen students have symptoms and at least one has tested positive. The city of Lynchburg is furious with Falwell, an outspoken Trump supporter who has spread disinformation, including that the virus is a North Korean bioweapon and that it's the next attempt to get Trump. We're conservative, we're Christian, and therefore we're being attacked, said Falwell on a far-right conspiracy theory radio show. A Trump-supporting pastor in Tampa, Florida, told his congregation that all these closings are for pansies and that only the rapture would cause him to suspend services. He was wrong about that. The police can stop him, too. The Reverend Rodney Howard Brown has been charged with unlawful assembly in violation of a public health emergency order. There were some 500 people inside his church this past Sunday morning in a church that encourages handshakes among worshipers. At the time, his county, Hillsborough, was under a safer-at-home order, even if, at the time, the rest of the state was not. The sheriff has accused Pastor Rod of reckless disregard for human life and noted the hundreds at risk and the thousands with whom they had contact. The preacher faces up to two months in jail on a $500 fine. In the meantime, he has paid his bail 
and plans to hold services again this Sunday, likely leading to another arrest. Even today, even now with a statewide stay-at-home order, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is refusing to shut down church services. They are not included in the shutdown order. Stay tuned. The Christian-focused chain of craft stores known as Hobby Lobby have reopened those stores in states that have ordered them shut down. At least one store in Milwaukee opened on Monday only to be forcibly shut down by police. A Hobby Lobby in Jefferson, Indiana was open for one hour before officials shut it down. It reopened on Tuesday, only to close again after a report about it on the local TV news. Michaels and Joanne Fabrics, meanwhile, have been arguing with state governments against their closure, echoing Hobby Lobby's claim that they are essential businesses. The owner of Hobby Lobby says during prayer, he and his wife received a message from God that said, guide, guard, and groom, but nothing about keeping the stores open. It was March 16th when former Texas Congressman Ron Paul wrote an article entitled The Coronavirus Hoax. In it, he accused Democrats of using the virus to, quote, grab more power and authority in the name of fighting a virus that has thus far killed less than 100 Americans, end quote. Six days later, his equally conservative Republican son, Rand Paul, became the first U.S. senator to test positive. Less than two weeks after Ron Paul called the virus a hoax, there were over 2,500 American deaths from it. The talk of a hoax itself has become its own public health threat by slowing the response of millions of Americans. A social media influencer known as Lars posted the coronavirus challenge on TikTok in which he licked a toilet seat to show his lack of fear for this new coronavirus. Other people followed suit, hence the term influencer. Lars is now posting on TikTok from his hospital bed. Last week, I reported on a coronavirus party in Kentucky from which at least one person is now sick with the new virus. You may recall that Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir said that that really made him mad. Bashir says he has to remind himself to forgive the person who fell ill for making a mistake. I reported a week ago about the town of Wellsville, Kansas, with a population of just over 1,800 people where folks at least a week ago saw the virus as either a hoax or something the Lord would help them survive. But Wellsville is not all of Kansas. About 875 people live in Cottonwood Falls. And to folks in more congested parts of the country, it too would appear to be in the middle of nowhere. But tens of thousands of tourists go to Cottonwood Falls, Kansas every year to dine at the Keller Feed and Wine Company. It's a family-owned 50-seat diner next to the county courthouse downtown. And it was one week ago today that the family that owns the Keller Feed and Wine Company posted on their Facebook page, Here is the best way you can help my small-town Kansas diner. Please stop coming here for now. You are quite possibly interfering with my ability to help my community and putting yourself at great risk. Again, I ask, no, beg of you, for our sakes as well as yours, please stay home. Please stop coming here and please stay home were in all capital letters. On Monday morning's Today Show, White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks also had a message, and hers was directed at rural America. If rural Americans don't take care now, she said, by the time you see it, it has penetrated your community pretty significantly. That's why you have to prepare, even though you think it's not there. 
And that is precisely why much of the Republican leadership in this country is doing it wrong when it comes to mitigating the spread of this new disease. On Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis issued a safer-at-home order, but only for southeast Florida. Except for certain other counties where local officials had issued their own orders, the rest of Florida was free to go about its business as though there was no public health threat. In much the same way as other Republican governors have refused to lock down their states, in the same way that Trump has refused to lock down the country, DeSantis fought to keep his tourism-driven state open for business. DeSantis said he was limiting the stay-at-home guidance just to southeast Florida because the rest of the state didn't have as many positive cases. Trump says the reason he's not shutting down the country is because some parts of the country don't have a significant number of cases. In DeSantis's case, it's likely because Floridians remain widely untested and because the virus has not stopped spreading. DeSantis's criteria then was, first you catch the virus, then we turn to social distancing. But testing and social distancing sooner and more widespread could have kept the numbers down in Florida and the nation. With millions of retired people and a dramatic lack of testing, Florida positioned itself as the next likely epicenter of the U.S. pandemic. More on DeSantis and, of course, Trump later in this report. From Trump to DeSantis and some Republican governors in between, they've been doing it wrong. They're not just coming at it from a wrong angle. They're doing it precisely backward, reacting when acting sooner and more comprehensively would have made this vastly less painful for everyone, possibly cutting the number of cases and deaths in half. Republican leaders are playing catch-up now and reluctantly. There are, as of this recording, about 217,000 cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. and well over 5,000 people have died here. Worldwide, the case total is approaching 1 million people with over 48,000 dead. It's becoming clear now just how much of a difference strict social distancing rules can make. In Seattle, where the U.S. outbreak began, the rate of increase in deaths has slowed to less than other parts of the country. With people staying at home, the virus isn't spreading as it had. At the start of this month, infected persons were passing it on to 2.7 other people. It's now down to 1.4 other people. On Tuesday, the government's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said, we're starting to see glimmers that social distancing works. But he emphasizes that while the increase is slowing, the numbers are still going up. Seattle, for as bad as it got there, did not see its hospitals overwhelmed. Washington Governor Jay Ensley said there is evidence that doing the aggressive measures can have a benefit. In New York, where hospitalizations were doubling every two days, they're now doubling about every five days or so. Given the density we're dealing with, it spreads very quickly, said Governor Andrew Cuomo, but if you reduce the density, you can reduce the spread very quickly. The governors of both Washington and New York are Democrats, but some Republican leaders have stepped up as well. But too many governors have done nothing. So, for now, what we have is a patchwork of protection, putting countless lives at risk. During a national crisis, when steady national leadership was needed, Americans in some states began to realize that it was their state, county, and local officials who took on the leadership responsibilities. When everyone went back to work after the start of the new year, an emergency management coordinator in Texas spent the next three weeks checking his county's supply of hazmat suits and surgical gloves and respirator masks and hand sanitizer. Except for some expired masks, Bexar County appeared to be well-stocked. 
But this emergency manager, Kyle Coleman, was also watching the news from the first coronavirus death in China through the first case to appear in Washington state. Coleman knew it was just a matter of time before it got to the two million people in his county that includes San Antonio. After he heard Trump say, we have it totally under control, Coleman bought another 25,000 respirator masks. Before Trump's under-control declaration, officials in Westchester County, New York, were also taking inventory of their protective equipment and respirators. San Francisco was ramping up, according to the Washington Post, as were other cities and counties around the country, as they dug out the pandemic response plans they'd drawn up in 2009 for H1N1. When Trump insisted he had done all that was needed by cutting off travel from China and that everything was under control, state, county, and city officials from coast to coast were seeing a different picture. Seeing no sign of leadership from the federal government, state and local leaders have often been days and even weeks ahead of the feds in taking steps to protect their citizens. Even Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine had moved with certainty days before the White House, declaring a state of emergency, even though his state at the time had only three reported cases. Trump did declare a national emergency on March 13th, but by then, 30 of our 50 states had already done so. It was late January when the Trump administration, through the U.S. State Department, shipped nearly 18 tons of medical supplies to China for its coronavirus crisis. That shipment included gowns, masks, and respirators that are now in short supply across the U.S. if you listen to the doctors and nurses. That was back when Trump was calling the COVID-19 the new hoax. Now, the Trump administration is appealing to the rest of the world for donations of masks, gloves, respirators, and hand sanitizer. While the Trump administration floundered, a union for healthcare workers found a supplier who could quickly provide New York hospitals with 39 million masks. The National Cathedral in Washington found 5,000 masks in its crypt, which it immediately distributed to two hospitals in Washington. The Pentagon says it's had 2,000 ventilators at the ready for two weeks now, but that it's still waiting on Health and Human Services to find out where to distribute them. China has now shipped to the U.S. at least 80 tons of medical supplies, more than four times what the U.S. had sent to China. That started Sunday to be followed by 21 more shipments from China. But why did the administration send its supplies to China when it was already clear to government intelligence officials that the virus was coming here? And we should note, yesterday the Australian government seized a shipment of medical gear from China because it was faulty equipment. After a phone call between Trump and Putin, Russia sent a plane load of medical equipment and protective gear that arrived yesterday. Both Russia and China, meanwhile, continue to spread disinformation about the virus on social media, sowing the seeds of panic and distrust in Western governments, according to a document obtained by Reuters. While Trump was tweeting about Adam Schiff, Joe Biden, Mitt Romney, Bob Mueller, Michael Avenatti, the lamestream corrupt and fake news, Trump derangement syndrome, and liberal snowflakes, your local leaders in many cases were acting. Even Congress was acting. Trump was talking about throwing open the country on April 12th against the stern advice of doctors to get the economy going again. After postponing his goal, Trump remained focused on the large numbers of suicides, tremendous suicides, end quote, if the economy remains shut down. You'll see drugs being used like nobody's ever used them before, and people are going to be dying all over the place from drug addiction, he said. 
But in the words of Republican Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, we save our economy by first saving lives, and we have to do it in that order. As Trump continues to refuse to issue a national stay-at-home order, most of our state governors already have. Most, but not all, leaving us with a patchwork of protection in what the head of the United Nations calls our greatest crisis since World War II. Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, and both Dakotas have no statewide order, and there are only partial stay-at-home orders in Alabama, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Utah, and Wyoming. Pennsylvania, Nevada, Mississippi, and Florida finally went for statewide orders just yesterday. Florida's state surgeon general says he was told by an epidemiologist that Florida should be shut down immediately, but Governor Ron DeSantis said he never heard nothing about that. DeSantis, who's very close to the president, said he was waiting for advice from the White House before making his decision. Even though the president lacks the authority to shut down the country, he certainly could have advised Governor DeSantis and the other governors dragging their feet while people die. But the president hasn't done that either. Epidemiologists say every day counts, but that putting off shutting down Florida beyond this coming Monday would have exploded the state's infection rate. DeSantis had trailed even Trump in responding to the tsunami he has to know is headed his way. He continues to blame an influx of New Yorkers setting up checkpoints that backed up traffic for miles. An analysis of numbers by the Tampa Bay Times showed there has been no major influx of New Yorkers, such as DeSantis has claimed. Of the half-dozen states with over 5,000 cases, Florida was the only one of those states without a statewide shutdown order. Florida, which also lags behind the rest of the country in testing, has already confirmed more than 7,000 cases, with infections here doubling every four days. DeSantis had left it to each county in Florida, just as Trump continues to leave it to each state. It's a patchwork and dangerously sloppy. DeSantis claimed that if he were to issue a state order, people would just ignore it. Quoting him, no matter what you do, you're going to have a class of folks who are going to do whatever the hell they want to. Why pass a law against speeding if people are going to speed anyway? This is not the case in Maryland, where the governor there has ordered the arrest of those who violate the state safety rules. Yesterday, Ron DeSantis caved to the pressure and finally issued that statewide order. It should also be noted that a new Gallup poll shows that about 80% of Americans under the age of 30 are social distancing, as are 90% in the older age groups. With more than 85 Floridians already dead, what was DeSantis waiting for? What is Trump waiting for? Trump praised DeSantis' decision-making, tweeting, a great governor knows exactly what he's doing. Florida and the other states with no or only partial shutdowns are putting themselves and the rest of the country at risk. As long as people can travel, they can take the virus with them. One way or another, the nation must be shut down, and the sooner, like yesterday, the better. The pro-Trump town of Fort Myers, Florida, has been extremely reluctant to shut down the bars, restaurants, and the 50 miles of white sand beaches that attract tourists from all over the world. Normally, March, to places like Fort Myers, is what Black Friday is to retailers everywhere. But it wasn't this year because the party had to end early as the virus killed two people in Fort Myers. We don't usually hear much from governors, Three months ago, most of us didn't know the names of our own. Now, in a number of states, they have become a daily fixture on TV, providing some of the most reliable information on the number of cases versus the number of supplies. 
In fairness, some governors, because of their state constitutions, don't have as much power as other governors when it comes to issuing orders that involve big decisions, including whether to call up the National Guard. Political affiliation isn't always the deciding factor when it comes to leadership against the virus, but in many cases it is. Regardless of party, governors have to be careful about what they say about the federal response. They have to walk on eggshells. It's a lesson New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo has had to learn. Both he and Trump seem to have backed down a bit from their public criticisms of one another. It had started to get ugly before each gave credit where due, but the underlying tension continues. California Governor Gavin Newsom has freely criticized Trump, but he's used the more flies with sugar approach, praising the president now for his focus on coronavirus treatments, but the underlying tension continues. There's tension between Trump and other governors as well. Illinois' Jay Pritzker once got into a Twitter feud with Trump, calling the president a carnival barker. Trump recently called the governor of Washington, Jay Ensley, a snake. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly tells The Guardian that she and the other governors talk not just about how to handle a coronavirus response, but about how to handle him. Now, when it comes to coordination and even supplies for fighting the virus, a governor's relationship with Trump is key. It's a two-way street, said Trump on Fox. They have to treat us well, he said, meaning praise the president or show him great respect and your state will get what it needs. All I want them to do, very simple, I want them to be appreciative, said Trump. When they're not appreciative to me, it's not right. After Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer criticized the federal response, Trump answered a reporter who'd asked what her failure to show appreciation might mean to the people of her state. Mike Pence calls all the governors, said Trump, continuing. I tell him, I mean, I'm a different type of person, but I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. You're wasting your time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. You know what I say? If they don't treat you right, don't call, end quote. I don't call the governor of Washington, said Trump. He's a failed presidential candidate. He's a nasty person. I don't like the governor of Washington, he said, adding, when they don't respect me, they're disrespecting our government. Believing he is the government, Trump's personal grievances become policy. And with Trump, it's more about the personal than the pandemic. Florida, meanwhile, has gotten all the supplies it has requested while other states have had to settle for as little as 5% of their own requests. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis speaks with Trump by phone every day these days. Over the weekend, a reporter asked Trump if people in states with governors you're not getting along with should be concerned. Of course not, he replied, adding, really, I think most of the governors are very appreciative. And then he changed the subject. By Trump's own directive, States and hospitals would have to fend for themselves, competing for protective and medical equipment, trying to outbid each other, and now competing against the federal government itself. What hospitals and state and local officials have found without access to the national stockpile is middlemen, fraud, and price gouging. Some hospitals are paying 50 times the usual price for the basics because they have no choice. As it turns out, the national strategic stockpile has a misleading name. It was established in the 1990s as the threat of terrorist attacks was on the rise. The supplies are stored in secret warehouses around the country. The stockpile is intended for use in multiple locations to respond to multiple terror attacks, not intended to serve every city and every county and every state in the Union. It just wasn't built that way. The entire national stockpile could never meet the needs of, say, California, even if California got everything in it. 
and equipment from that stockpile is being distributed to states without any apparent rhyme or reason. Some states are getting only a fraction of what they say they need, while other states are getting equipment they say they don't need. And some of that equipment just flat doesn't work. Thousands of ventilators sent to states are useless after the Trump administration allowed a maintenance contract to run out last year. With its high turnover rate and inexperienced leaders, the administration was not prepared for this pandemic. Hundreds of unfilled jobs in the Trump administration and a clumsy handoff of the stockpile from Homeland Security to FEMA didn't help. Had the Defense Production Act been used sooner, and were it being used now to its fullest, we would not have this bidding war on life-saving supplies. That's why nurses are wearing garbage bags as protective gowns. The Trump administration has literally used the Defense Production Act to place hundreds of thousands of orders over the past three and a half years for missiles, drone parts, body armor for the Border Patrol, and natural disaster response gear. Now, suddenly, it's an act he's reluctant to use, saying that government orders to private industry is not what we do in this country. A leader in a healthcare workers union told a conference call, this is a train wreck happening in slow motion right before our eyes. Do the moral thing, Mr. President. Get those nurses and healthcare workers the protective gear they need. He has the power. Yesterday, Homeland Security announced that the stockpile is nearly empty just as our numbers are starting to go up. Had we had steady national leadership, this crisis would be far less severe. As it is, we've turned to our state and local officials to lead us through this pandemic. Some states are doing a heck of a job. Some states are not or have acted too slowly. Check your local listings. Because very little leading has been done from the White House. It took only a week for the South Korean government to order companies to produce the medical supplies it would need. It took the Trump government six weeks. Trump's orders to stop travelers from China had bought the U.S. some time, but that time went to waste. At least a month was lost in the quest for a test due to, quoting the New York Times, technical flaws, regulatory hurdles, business-as-usual bureaucracies, and a lack of leadership at multiple levels. The Post reached that conclusion after speaking with more than 50 current and former public health officials, administration officials, senior scientists, and company executives. While over a million tests have now been conducted in the U.S., former CDC Director Tom Frieden says the widespread testing began, quote, far too late. The U.S. was and still is flying blind, or at least with obscured vision. You want to know whether or not you have it, said Dr. Bruce Alward of the World Health Organization, who continued, you want to know whether people around you have it, because you know what, said the doc, then you could stop it. It's one person coming from China, Trump said on January 22nd. We have it totally under control. It's going to be just fine, he said. But by that time, Texas's Kyle Coleman was already ordering more respirator masks for his county. Albeit late, Trump is finally taking more serious steps to respond to the crisis, calling up military help and using a president's emergency powers to speed the production of some medical equipment. He ordered the Pentagon to allow reserves and some veterans to return to active duty, and some have volunteered. But it's been a slow and bumpy road to get even this far. After days of vacillation and criticism for that indecision, Trump finally actually invoked the Defense Production Act he'd been avoiding, forcing the production of more ventilators, personal protective equipment, and more. 
But the companies being called on to produce that equipment were already doing so. They were doing it voluntarily, and there's a good chance Trump knew that when he issued his order. As reported here last week, Trump thinks it's un-American for the government to order private enterprise to do anything. So the fact that GM, Ford, Phillips, Tesla, Chrysler, and others were already on it didn't matter. As many as eight companies would produce 100,000 ventilators over the next 100 days, even after Trump said he thought hospitals were asking for ridiculous numbers of them. But by the time Trump enacted the DPA, the U.S. already had over 100,000 cases of COVID-19. And that's very nearly the least of what Trump could have done already. He could have used the Pentagon and its contractors to fix problems in the supply chain to make sure companies have the parts they need to make those ventilators and respirators. He could have seized control of the nation's supply of ventilators, making sure that we put the most where we need them the most. He could have ordered the repurposing of the simpler ventilators used by some elective surgery centers, including plastic surgeons' offices. Those aren't being used right now anyway, and some of those doctors are now lending theirs to hospitals. Trump's order to private industry... Defense Production Act or not, was more like a gentle request. Early Saturday, Trump blindsided New York Governor Andrew Cuomo by announcing he was considering a quarantine on New York and parts of New Jersey and Connecticut. Because the idea was both legally questionable and mostly unenforceable, Trump reversed his position by the end of the day. He's drifted from hoax to war with an invisible enemy that could take 200,000 American lives or more. He's backed off his plan to reopen the country on Easter, pushing the date back to at least the end of April and possibly to the end of May. As if the policy turns weren't confusing enough, so too are his statements. At his Sunday coronavirus briefing, Trump told reporters he'd heard that there could have been as many as 2 million American deaths if he'd not acted at all. That's true. That came from a college in London. This is the same president who said the numbers would drift down to zero and that COVID-19 would one day disappear like magic, gone in April as the weather warms in many parts of the country. It is now peaking in April. Also Sunday, Trump seemed to accuse hospital workers of stealing N95 masks and selling them on the black market. Asking rhetorical questions about one New York hospital, Trump said, how do you go from 10,000 per week to 300,000? I don't think it's hoarding, said Trump. I think it's maybe worse than hoarding. Something's going on, and you ought to look into it as reporters, he added, asking, are they going out the back door? Was Trump accusing doctors and nurses who are risking their lives of giving up critically needed life-saving equipment so they could sell it on the black market? Many health professionals took it that way. Reporters, by the way, did look into the masks and found that the administration has done nothing to stop American companies from selling them overseas. Forbes reports that about 280 million masks from warehouses around this country have been bought up by foreign buyers who plan to take them out of the U.S. The Trump administration is not only failing to stop the export of those masks, it's failing to order American companies to make and sell masks here in the U.S., something the White House could easily do under the Defense Protection Act. It could even use that act to seize those masks headed out of the country and prevent them from leaving American soil. But in much the same way as the president refuses to issue a national stay-at-home order, he is refusing to use the awesome powers he has under the Defense Protection Act. At one point, the commander-in-chief referred to the 151 countries of the world. Staring into the camera lens, he repeated, 151 countries, that's something. 
It certainly is, but not as impressive as the 195 countries we actually have. He was only off by 44 countries. And he made false and misleading statements twice, denying things he had clearly said in public on tape last week. He claimed that certain states were requesting things they don't need. When asked if that would affect the distribution of federal equipment, Trump cut off the NPR reporter to blurt, I didn't say that. But you know, he did say that. It was on Hannity's show on Fox that Trump said, quote, a lot of equipment's being asked for that I don't think they need, end quote. On the subject of governors, another reporter asked Trump about his earlier quote, if they don't treat you right, I don't call. But I didn't say that, Trump claimed Sunday. I didn't say that. Ah, but he did. It's on the tape from last Friday's briefing. And although coronavirus tests are finally becoming more widely available this week, Trump was on a conference call with governors Monday in which he said, quote, he hasn't heard anything about testing in weeks, suggesting he no longer sees a shortage of tests as a problem, as if he ever did. And for the average American with symptoms, those tests are still at least two weeks away. At least. Now, taking some action against the pandemic, Trump's messages continue to be contradictory and confusing, and his response, woefully incomplete. The House Homeland Security Committee has voted to set up a bipartisan commission to give a full and complete accounting of the government's response, just as was done after 9-11. Albeit too late, what is finally prompting Trump to take this crisis more seriously? While it's true he started listening more to the health professionals who've warned him of a massive death count without action, he's also listening to his campaign advisors who have finally told him that losing a million American lives or more would do more harm to his re-election effort than would a collapsed economy. A new Pew Research Center poll shows that 9 out of 10 Americans agree with the restrictions put in place to try to help control the spread of COVID-19. A YouGov poll for Yahoo News shows that about 6 in 10 Americans believes opening the country for Easter, raring to go, as Trump had first suggested, would be too soon. And Trump is all about the public opinion polls, pleased to see his numbers going up and the gap between him and Joe Biden narrowing. More than a dozen sources inside the campaign and inside the White House tell the Washington Post that Trump was reminded that his voter base includes rural Americans who don't have the doctors and hospitals they need to handle the outbreak once it arrives in their areas. They showed Trump the poll numbers that show voters want to keep the restrictions in place. On Tuesday, Trump said nothing would be worse than declaring victory before the victory is won. He may have been echoing his campaign advisors. And that's when Trump's target date moved back by as long as two and a half months. We can expect by June 1st, he said, that we'll be well on our way to recovery. But albeit too late, Trump is also starting to understand the health and mortality implications of the pandemic. Dr. Fauci, White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Deborah Birx and Vice President Mike Pence have been showing Trump best-case scenarios that still leave as many as 240,000 Americans dead. Again, that's the best-case scenario, what we'd see if we had a national shutdown. Without one, the numbers are likely to be much higher. Fauci, Burks, and Pence recommended to Trump that he allow the nation to remain shut down through at least the end of April, if not longer. Trump, who had said it was all under control and going to be just fine and that it would disappear like a miracle, reportedly shook his head and said... I guess we got to do it. But he still hasn't issued a national stay-at-home order, leaving holes in our defense.
Dr. Fauci, meanwhile, is now surrounded by increased security after receiving multiple death threats. Last month, Facebook allowed the spread to tens of thousands of people a supposed article depicting Fauci as an agent of the deep state. Those posts, liked by Trump supporters, Fauci has on occasion gently corrected some of the president's misstatements. Fox News pundits have also criticized the respected doctor. Fauci's also being protected against unwelcome approaches from his most fervent fans. On his own, Trump has seen the study from the Imperial College of London, which found that as many as 2.2 million Americans could die without any mitigation measures. Lindsey Graham says it was that number that turned Trump around. And then this happened. I grew up near Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, Trump said. Body bags all over. They're bringing in refrigerator trucks to put the bodies in. Refrigerated trucks, big vans like big trucks coming in. In that moment, Trump seemed uncharacteristically emotional. Freezer trucks because they can't handle the bodies. There are so many of them. This is in essentially my community in Queens. I have seen things I have never seen before. Trump is often both drawn to and terrified of carnage, as he often cites anecdotal evidence of immigrant violence, in at least one case based on something he'd seen in a movie. He remains focused on the suicides and drug overdoses if we keep the country shut down. He's even used the phrase American carnage in his inaugural address in reference to the Obama administration's economic policies. Yesterday, he referred to, quote, the violence of this pandemic. And as much as Trump critics don't want to hear it, there appears to be a personal aspect to Trump's revelations about the virus. The president who told us this was the flu now says, quote, it's not the flu, it's vicious. When you send a friend to the hospital and you call to find out how he's doing, it happened to me. He goes to the hospital, he says goodbye, and you call up the next day and he's in a coma. This, said Trump, finally, is not the flu. Deny it if you will, and many have, but Trump did adopt a more somber tone this week, even if he is still the same Donald Trump. He once again referred to his friend with this disease. Still the same Trump, he now understands that many lives are at stake, as well as his re-election. Salon.com's Bob Seska and I see many things the same way, but not always and not completely. He's here now to speak for those who find Trump incapable of either emotion or sobriety. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. He's the worst possible president at the worst possible time. Make no mistake, the COVID-19 pandemic and the accompanying financial crisis are a direct result of stunted, incompetent leadership. Not to overstate the obvious, but Donald Trump should have been bounced from office after praising Nazis and Confederacy fanboys as very fine people. That was 2017. Tens of thousands of trespasses against Democratic values later, here we are in one of the most harrowing disasters of our lives. And it's primarily because 62 million suckers decided the presidency was so inconsequential that it could be occupied by a completely inexperienced preening TV weirdo who bankrupted a handful of casinos. Tragically, his existence as president during this catastrophe is a fact of life, but the silver lining is that his re-election is absolutely not. However, I'm deeply concerned that the White House press corps, along with the Daily Trump Show, is going to propel him to a second term. 
Again, it's not carved in stone and polling indicates an uphill climb for Trump. But based on my calculus, his chances for achieving a second term are better now than they were before this crisis began. It seems counterintuitive to write it, but during any other administration, a president this profoundly inferior, this profoundly unprepared for the task of leadership, would have been bounced from office a long time ago, or at the very least, sidelined from the real decision-making, the real grown-up work. Yet for reasons that defy sanity, Trump has been gifted with chance after chance, thanks mostly to the conservative propaganda complex, But now, the legitimate news media has perhaps inadvertently joined the cause. We'll start with a horrifying reality that the TV networks have provided Trump with hours and hours of free airtime to ballyhoo his stunted presidency, preempting regular programming and beamed into the homes of Americans already glued to their TVs and computers. A captive audience, so to speak. Local affiliates, along with CNN and MSNBC, have pulled back on their wall-to-wall coverage of the Trump show, but the damage has already been done. And after Tuesday's episode, it's clear that way too many reporters continue to believe Trump is capable of genuine sincerity and sobriety. After Trump discussed an estimated death toll of perhaps millions of Americans due to the pandemic, more than a few reporters fell for the Charlie Brown football trick once again calling the president's performance grave, sober, grim, realistic. One reporter said Trump's thinking had changed. How the hell does anyone know what Trump's thinking? Eric Lipton from the New York Times, meanwhile, said, death appears to have changed his tone. No. Here's some breaking news for the political journalists working at the White House. There will be no pivot, ever. Stop falling for his flim-flams. All evidence proves Trump doesn't have the capacity to give a rip about anyone other than Trump. And don't forget, Trump would dress up like a baseball chicken mascot for his press briefings if he thought for a second it'd help him sell his bullshit on a stick. Any shift in his tone of voice was just part of the con. Trump is incapable of empathy. He's incapable of caring about anyone other than himself. He doesn't care about you, me, or anyone who's not him. So knowing all this, here's how Trump can get reelected. Trump will continue to be Trump. He'll continue to repeat that he's the greatest human being on the planet when it comes to dealing with the coronavirus. He'll continue to present himself as the hero of the pandemic with flawless decision-making and the greatest actions taken. Shockingly, the TV people will continue to show either the Trump shows in their entirety or they'll only show the normal-seeming clips of Trump, the scant moments that occur between the shards of disinformation and propaganda. Then, when the crisis concludes, even with hundreds of thousands of dead Americans, he'll insist he saved millions of lives. And newspapers like the New York Times will print those boasts as news without clarifying the truth. This will ricochet around the various echo chambers, and suddenly voters will believe Trump's response was far greater than the disaster that it actually was. By election day, too many of us will have forgotten his mistakes, lost in the fire hose of news. Who the hell knows what other cataclysms will have dropped into our laps, obliterating all of Trump's prior calamities in the same way his horrible response to COVID-19 has obliterated everything from Charlottesville to Puerto Rico to the crimes listed in the Mueller report to the impeachment and so on. It'll be too late to take to the streets after the November election is over, and we can't take to the streets now. 
but we can, at the very least, push the cable news networks and some of the papers of record to become better documentarians of the Trump presidency. There are many fine journalists at the Washington Post and the New York Times, and I'm personally grateful for the reporting they've delivered so far. But that doesn't erase the reality that they're giving Trump way too much leeway, even while he routinely pantses them in public. Trump hasn't once earned the benefit of the doubt from any of us, and the usual suspects in the press need to stop giving it to him now. The future of the republic hinges on the outcome of our votes this fall, and if Trump gets another term, it legitimizes his presidency, handing him all kinds of new political capital he can exploit at our collective expense. If there were ever a one-term loser, it's got to be Trump. Let's get to work on that front. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Publicly, Trump remains focused on reopening the country, saying his administration will label each county in the country with a risk level of high, medium, or low, hoping to reopen areas where the risk is low, again leaving only a patchwork defense for the nation. But Trump now also knows what health professionals and millions of Americans have already known about how precautions can save huge numbers of lives. He's no longer saying the cure could be worse than the disease. Now, he says, the economy is number two on my list. First, I want to save a lot of lives. The polls and also the doctors tell him it's the right thing to do. He's now taking credit for saving a million lives, and in fact, he probably is. But he still fails to see how his painfully slow and inadequate response could have saved hundreds of thousands, maybe a million more. Yesterday, Vice President Mike Pence tried to put the blame on the CDC for calling the virus low risk in mid-January and on China for not being more forthcoming about its own crisis. But in late February, even in late March, Trump was still calling it a flu. I don't believe the president has ever belittled the threat of the coronavirus, said Pence, adding that Trump was just trying to stay optimistic. Mitch McConnell blames Trump's impeachment, saying it, quote, diverted the attention of the government because everything every day was all about impeachment. Conservative pundit Geraldo Rivera quickly agreed on Twitter. But their claims were immediately shot down by Trump himself, who said, I don't think I would have acted very differently, or I don't think I would have acted any faster. Indeed, in the early days of the pandemic, Trump held nine of his rallies and played six rounds of golf while the Senate's Mitch McConnell pursued two election-year abortion bills that had no chance of passage. By Sunday, more than 2,400 Americans had died from COVID-19 infections, and it was on that Sunday morning that the current president tweeted about himself in third person as he quoted, Somebody. President Trump is a ratings hit, said the tweet. It continued, Mr. Trump and his coronavirus updates have attracted an average audience of 8.5 million, roughly the viewership of the season finale of The Bachelor. Later in his new daily TV show, Trump bragged again about the ratings and told reporters, I read that CNN doesn't want to cover them except they can't help it because their ratings are so high. The ratings are like Monday night football ratings, he said. This time, Trump had the correct numbers because these numbers were about him. He said it on a day that nearly as many people had died as had on 9-11.
It was on the same day that he did get wrong the population of Seoul, South Korea. He had been asked why South Korea has conducted more COVID-19 tests per capita than the U.S. He said that's because South Korea is more densely populated. I know South Korea better than anybody, he said. It's very tight. Do you know how many people are in Seoul, he asked. Because he was sure he had this one, he didn't wait for the reporter to answer. 38 million people, said Trump. He or someone on his staff had misread the Wikipedia listing for Seoul, which does include the phrase 38M. As luck would have it, the M stands for meters, not million. He was citing the elevation of Seoul, South Korea, not the population. It was the elevation he had so proudly memorized, thinking it was the population. Seoul's population is just under 10 million, not 38 million. And yet to repeat the quote, I know South Korea better than anybody. But he got the ratings numbers right. Ratings and polls are the most important things to Trump because they're a place to find approval. More importantly, clearly, than the people dying back in Queens where Trump was a boy. It was a chance to congratulate himself and berate the legitimate, constitutionally protected free press. He said CNN's temptation to stop carrying the Trump show is why the network is, quote, not trusted anymore and why people are not watching anymore. He tore into a CNN reporter telling her, why don't you act a little more positive? Don't be threatening. Be nice. The reporter had made the apparent mistake of reading back to Trump his own words, doubting the need for respirators. So despite Trump's revelations about this disease and his apparent personal connection to it, he is still the same guy. The daily coronavirus press briefings continue to be a font of misinformation from the president from the population of South Korea's largest city to the anti-malaria drugs Trump has pushed through the approval process without testing to use on coronavirus patients. Whether it's promising or dangerous, hydroxychloroquine is the one thing that Trump can get to the hospitals, and right now that's where it's being shipped. As a nation, we are divided, as we are with Trump and a string of key issues, about how the government is handling the crisis. 48% in a CNN poll say the government's done a good job. 47% say the government's done a poor job. The approval of the government's handling of the crisis actually ticked up a point over the last month, but the disapproval has climbed four points just in the last three weeks. But government's a pretty general term. There are, after all, state and county governments as well as the federal government. So which governments are we talking about? Another new poll, this one from the Associated Press and a University of Chicago research group, shows that while Americans give very high marks to their state and local leaders for their handling of the crisis, fewer than half approve of the job the president and the federal government are doing. And a less formal poll from UPI shows two-thirds of its readers saying the U.S. is not doing enough with only 35% saying it is. Still, presidents traditionally get a bump in their numbers as the country rallies around that office in a war or pandemic. The bump for Trump has made its presence known also in a Washington Post-ABC News poll that has Joe Biden leading Trump now by only two points, well within the margin of error. That same poll last month at this time showed Biden with a seven-point lead. Now it's two it's the president's national crisis bump and his daily TV show. The impeached president has drawn to a virtual tie with Joe Biden with the election just over seven months away. This, of course, tells us nothing about what to expect from the electoral college vote, only the popular vote. 
Among the big four electoral college states, Biden leads by about four points in Pennsylvania and Michigan. But Wisconsin's a tie, and Trump leads by just over 1% in Florida. Quoting famed pollster Nate Silver, almost nothing about what Joe Biden is doing for the next few weeks is going to matter much for November, and almost everything about what Donald Trump is doing is going to matter a lot. But Biden has not yet won the Democratic nomination, and Bernie Sanders, despite the polls and the circumstances, remains in the race. A Washington Post-ABC News poll that once gave Sanders a healthy lead over Biden now has Biden leading Sanders 55% to 39%. As with Hillary Clinton, Sanders' relentless candidacy threatens to split Democrats just enough to hand another victory to Donald Trump. There's speculation Sanders will stay in the race right up to the convention. Until the shutdowns came, Sanders still wanted to debate Biden on schedule this month. The last time Sanders took that approach and then urged his ardent followers to back Clinton, they booed him loudly. It didn't work. Quoting a longtime Clinton advisor, it's the equivalent of a World War II kamikaze pilot. They have no better option than to plow into the USS Biden. It's possible Sanders is still holding out for influence, for the kinds of policies from Biden that Bernie supporters will accept, and holding out for more seats on the Democratic Party's platform committee. Biden has been open and downright gracious about that. Or maybe Sanders is just biding his time in case Biden trips up. Stay tuned. Never mind the debates, Joe Biden isn't sure there'll even be a Democratic National Convention come July. It's hard to envision it, said Biden. Democrats set the convention earlier this year to get out of the way of the summer Olympic coverage, which would have immediately followed their convention coverage, but the Olympics are off now. The Republican convention is set in only slightly safer territory in August, but even that is questionable. Biden is proposing the Democratic convention now be moved to August as well. Biden is also a little worried about Election Day, November 3rd. He's calling on all 50 states to consider staging a virtual election and allowing people to vote by mail. Democratic Party Chairman Tom Perez wants vote by mail as well. They should be doing that now, said Biden, adding, this is about making sure we're able to conduct our democracy while dealing with a pandemic. We can do both. It may mean drive-in voting, but we should be talking about it now, he said. Many of our polling places are now closed to the public while a great majority of the country is told to stay home. Secretaries of state across the country are pondering how to have an election, any election, and maintain social distancing. At least 15 states, including Georgia, have postponed their primaries now, except for Wisconsin, which has decided to go it alone this coming Tuesday. Unbelievably, Tuesday's Wisconsin primary is still on, even though Wisconsin towns and cities won't have enough poll workers to open even one location. Definitely stay tuned for how this goes. The Trump campaign, meanwhile, has sent a letter to TV stations threatening their FCC broadcast licenses. His official super PAC, America First Action, is pressuring TV stations to drop an anti-Trump ad that focuses on his mismanagement of the pandemic. The ad was placed by the pro-Biden super PAC, Priorities USA. Lawyers for the Trump campaign sent stations known to be carrying the ad a cease-and-desist letter that included a threat that the Trump FCC could pull their licenses and a court fight that would be both costly and time-consuming. They say the ad, which uses Trump's own words to indict him, is false and misleading advertising. 
The U.S. Navy ships Mercy and Comfort are now docked in New York and Los Angeles to provide extra much-needed hospital beds and medical equipment. The debate continues over how those hospital ships are to be used either for COVID or non-COVID patients. Meanwhile, the commander of the USS Theodore Roosevelt has a problem, the likes of which we have never seen before. With 4,000 men and women on board, the Roosevelt is docked in Guam, and the captain is pleading with the U.S. Navy to let him leave at least some of his personnel on shore for quarantine. At least 100 sailors on that vessel have tested positive. Like most Navy ships, the quarters and corridors are tight, regardless of those ships' massive size. But Guam has only a half dozen ICU beds, so a military field hospital might have to be flown in. In his plea to the Navy, Captain Brent Crozier wrote, We are not at war. Soldiers do not need to die. If we do not act now, we are failing to properly take care of our most trusted asset, our sailors. Although he says no one on board has been hospitalized yet, he says he has some in those tight quarters who have tested positive. Overnight, a thousand sailors from the Roosevelt were moved ashore, mostly into hotel rooms on Guam. An unknown number of those sailors are in isolation. And then there's the Zandam cruise ship, desperately hoping to dock in Florida. The ship remains at sea with four dead bodies on board and two people in dire need of medical care, at least two. But officials in Broward County, where the ship hopes to dock, say they are not yet satisfied with the way Holland America Cruise Lines is handling their floating crisis. Holland America has not explained how it would safely get passengers back to their cars, much less back to their homes. The Coast Guard is telling the Zandam it will not be allowed to enter U.S. waters until it has a self-sufficient plan for treating its patients and handling its passengers. It's on its own. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Trump have been talking about this in their daily phone calls. Although Trump did not make clear what to expect, he told reporters, there are people that are sick on the ship, adding, I'm going to do what's right, not just for us, but for humanity. The cruise lines tried to medevac two sick passengers to onshore hospitals, but no country would take them, including the U.S., even though there are desperate Americans on board. DeSantis has reportedly lobbied Trump to keep the ship from disembarking in Florida. Yesterday, the U.S. Coast Guard said cruise ships must stay at sea indefinitely. The Zandam was on course to arrive in the international waters just off Port Everglades this morning. Dozens of cruise ships remain lined up at that port and Port Miami with three more ships on the way. Most of them have only crew on board, but there are 6,000 passengers on three Carnival ships in addition to the passengers on three newly arrived ships. Procter & Gamble is the company that brought the world its first commercial soap as we know it today. And with all our recent hand-washing, we know from soap. It was Procter & Gamble's promotion of its products that gave us what we to this day refer to as soap operas. And it made the TV networks a lot of money with afternoon radio and TV dramas sponsored by Procter & Gamble, which is now also one of several corporate sponsors of Trump's daily TV show. But this time, the networks don't get a dime from it. Trump's Daily Show, which is supposed to inform Americans about our battle against the disease, has featured needless and sometimes disturbing appearances by executives from Procter & Gamble, Honeywell, Walmart, CVS, and this week, the guy from the MyPillow TV ads. These are great companies, Trump tells his viewers, the way Fred Flintstone once pitched for Winston cigarettes. Trump introduced Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow, who some Americans may recognize from Trump's Red Hat rallies. 
Trump called Lindell a friend, adding, boy, do you sell those pillows. It's unbelievable what you do. It was indeed both kind and patriotic for Mr. Lindell to dedicate much of his pillow-making plant to a face mask-making factory. But then he got all God and Trump. God gave us grace on November 8th, 2016, he said. God had been taken out of our schools and lives. A nation had turned its back on God. And that's when he urged Americans in this time of crisis to read our Bibles. And then the real pitch. Our president, said the pillow guy, gave us so much hope when just a few short months ago we had the best economy, lower unemployment, and wages going up, adding, it was amazing. Reporters from the Washington Post, the New York Times, and CNBC are now staying away from the briefing, saying that the lack of news there isn't worth the health risk of attending. The debate continues over whether it's better to let Americans stuck at home really see and hear the president for long periods of time for the first time, or to cut off the briefings, to cut off the disinformation at the risk of being accused of censorship or worse. Each week, we learn new things about the medical and scientific aspects of the coronavirus. This week, we learned that pink eye, known to doctors as conjunctivitis, can be another early sign of COVID-19 in some people. An ophthalmology study found that about 1% of those testing positive for the virus also had viral conjunctivitis. Other early symptoms include a loss of smell and taste, or a sore throat, fever, headache, muscle aches, and digestive distress. But the three major symptoms of the virus are fever, a dry cough, and shortness of breath. We learned through other studies that 25, perhaps 50% of the people who have the virus have no idea they have it, which explains the rapid spread of this insidious new disease. Also this week, the FDA fast-tracked a 15-minute test for COVID-19. The Abbott Labs test can produce positive results in just five minutes and negative results in 13, and it's small enough to use in drive-through testing stations. The device can also be used to test for strep and influenza. Abbott expects to deliver 50,000 test kits a day in a month or so. Despite improvements this week, the widespread availability of tests in the U.S. is still weeks away, coinciding with the likely peak of the infection. Hospitals are now facing the heavy burden of deciding who lives and who dies. If there's only one to be had, should a person with a serious cancer get a respirator when a younger, healthier patient also needs one? These are conversations and the fears in hospitals across the country as they deal with a shortage of protective materials. They're now discussing universal do-not-resuscitate orders, regardless of a family's wishes. The president continues to use his daily TV show to spread false hope about hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19 patients. The drug remains untested, despite anecdotal evidence embraced by Trump and others, including New York's Andrew Cuomo. It has undergone no clinical trials for the virus, even though it's widely used to treat malaria, which is caused by a parasite, not a virus. Desperate New York is testing it now on thousands of people with the help of the FDA, despite the known risk it poses to heart patients. Nevada has banned the drug for coronavirus treatment, the state's top medical officer saying, we must deal with facts, not fiction. Led by Macy's, more national retail chains surrendered this week to the shutdowns and lack of sales 
in these early days of the pandemic. Macy's furloughed 130,000 to start, followed by at least a half dozen other national retail chains, J.C. Penney's, Kohl's, Sephora Express, The Gap, and more. In short, the malls are closed. There are layoffs at ZipRecruiter and 20th Century Fox, even at the YMCA, and wait for it, Mercy Health. Casinos, hotels, and aircraft companies are sidelining workers or letting them go. Cities and counties are considering layoffs. In some cases, the cuts have already been made. The layoffs have begun, and they're expected to get worse. Nearly half of all U.S. companies are looking at layoffs. In one survey, between 47 million and 66 million jobs are at risk. Unemployment could land above 32%. Nearly 3.5 million people filed for unemployment two weeks ago. This morning, we learned that another 6.6 million Americans have filed, bringing to 10 million the number of people who filed since the virus began crushing our economy. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin told Face the Nation Sunday he believes that the relief checks coming from the government in a couple of weeks should cover Americans for two and a half months. The $1,200 per taxpayer checks divided by 75 days comes to about $17 a day. The bottom has dropped out of our high-flying consumer confidence. A deep recession has begun that may wind up looking eerily similar to the Great Depression. One analyst says the Wall Street collapse of 2008 that set off the Great Recession was but a dress rehearsal for what is now to come. And about that stimulus rescue bill passed last week, who's, who's watching the money? Almost as soon as he'd signed that $2 trillion bill, Trump tried to curtail the oversight part of the bill that compels him to create a new inspector general's office to make sure the money's going where the bill says it should. The inspector general nominee would then be confirmed by the Senate. The inspector general is supposed to immediately inform Congress if anything goes hinky and to make sure no information is withheld from Congress. But almost immediately after the bill became law, the White House claimed executive privilege, saying the inspector general will tell Congress nothing without White House approval. Without supervision, the corporate bailouts get even sketchier than they already were because the bill gives Trump's Treasury Secretary wide discretion on which industry gets any money, including the cruise lines that aren't even U.S. companies. I'll be the oversight, Trump had declared before that Inspector General provision went into the bill. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says Congress will set up its own review panel to help the new Inspector General track the hundreds of billions of dollars now available. Senate Democrats are now pressing the White House to nominate the new IG and to do it quickly. They're also reminding Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin that he agreed to this provision in the negotiations over the bill and promised to carry them out. Democrats are now trying to hold Mnuchin to that deal. And then there's Richard Burr, the Republican chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who sold off nearly three dozen stocks worth as much as $1.7 million right after a classified briefing about the virus back in February. This week, the Justice Department launched an investigation into those trades, the most stock that Burr has ever sold in a single day. A law called the Stock Act prohibits members of Congress, their staff, and other federal officials from trading on inside information they got through their jobs, but it is difficult for prosecutors to build a case to prove that. Still, the stocks sold by Burr were in industries that were later hit hardest by the spread of the virus, including hotels and restaurants. Also under scrutiny, but not yet under investigation, 
is Georgia Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, who sold up to $3 million in stocks that have since fallen in value after she attended that coronavirus briefing. One victim of this pandemic, and we should have seen this coming, is its use by world leaders to seize even more power. Even in Britain, government ministers have been given mind-blowing power to close borders and detain people unchecked under what's called the Henry VIII powers. And in Hungary, the prime minister can now rule by decree like a king. There, democracy has died on this virus, with Viktor Orban now able to suspend laws and bypass that country's parliament. We're seeing similar moves in Israel, Singapore, the Philippines, and South Korea, and India. The microbe that eats plastic, the social distancing strip club, and a toilet tissue tragedy in the final second after this. If you'd like to help in this independent journalism effort, please click on the PayPal donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. Thank you. You may need some things you can't go out for now. You may need books or music or movies as well. Well, there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. The virus crisis has proved a perfect opportunity for Trump to step up the pursuit of his agendas, including immigration. The New York Times reports that work has accelerated on Trump's border wall, most notably in Arizona. The Trump administration argues that the wall will help stop the spread of coronavirus in the U.S. The scientists and doctors, epidemiologists, and the head of the CDC say it would not. At a time when the nation's resources are needed to fight the disease and its economic impact, construction on Trump's wall is speeding up. And U.S. immigration is still conducting raids during this crisis and using precious N95 masks to do so, according to reporting in The Guardian. ICE placed its bid for 45,000 N95 masks about 10 days ago, as it sows distrust in the U.S. government at a time that trust is most needed to curb the pandemic. The administration is also using the crisis to pursue its anti-environment agenda. On Tuesday, the Trump EPA announced its final decision to roll back the car efficiency and pollution standards set by the Obama administration, a move even U.S. car makers opposed until they were strong-armed by the administration. The move virtually erases the government's single biggest effort to fight climate change. The new Trump rules will let cars belch another billion more tons of carbon dioxide into the air and hundreds of billions of tons more than is being allowed in Europe and even Asia. Trump is expected to defend the rollback by saying it was needed for an economy stunted by the pandemic. He continues to ignore the science and continues to serve the fossil fuel industry. And it was a week ago today that the Trump EPA announced it's relaxing all environmental rules and allowing factories and power plants to decide for themselves in this crisis whether they're properly reporting the air and water pollution. The rules were relaxed, says the agency, in response to the pandemic. On a brighter note, scientists in Germany have discovered a microbe that eats plastic. This newly identified bacteria breaks down the chemical building blocks of polyurethane, which is used to make all kinds of plastic products. 
most of these plastics end up in landfills where they never decompose. The rest wind up in our oceans. This newly found little beastie could make a world of difference. COVID-19 now dominates the news, but the effects of this rough flu season are still being felt. In fact, there was another uptick in the number of flu cases again this week, possibly because of the increased diagnoses during the pandemic. Now some 39 million Americans have or have had the flu this year. It ticked up by 1 million people last week. We've lost 155 children to this year's flu, the highest that number has been since the H1N1 pandemic of 2009. Asthma sufferers are noticing a shortage of albuterol inhalers because so many people and hospitals have been trying to stave off coronavirus symptoms with these devices. That increased demand has created a shortage of asthma inhalers in some parts of the U.S. Manufacturers say they will catch up. A new government report shows that U.S. population growth has slowed so much it's almost in decline. And that report was assembled before the pandemic began. At the same time, we may be facing a worldwide shortage of condoms. The world's biggest producer, which makes prophylactics for Durex and other big brands, says the pandemic has forced it to shut down its factory. Its factories in Malaysia haven't made a single condom in over a week, shorting the world of 100 million condoms. Malaysia's been hit particularly hard by the virus. We lost a great civil rights leader this week. Joseph Lowry, who served as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s right-hand man, has died at age 98. Lowry founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Dr. King and served as president of that nonviolent civil disobedience group for 20 years. At the end of the Bloody Sunday March, it was Lowry who bravely marched up to the steps of the state capitol in Alabama to confront then-Governor George Wallace with the protesters' demands. Bob Dylan is out with his first original song in eight years, but it's not exactly uplifting for our times. Murder Most Foul is a 17-minute track about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and what Dylan sees as the country's decline ever since. Entertainment continues to be as affected by the coronavirus as every other walk of life. Star Wars actor Andrew Jack was diagnosed with it just two days before he died at the age of 76. Jack played General Emmott in three Star Wars outings, The Last Jedi, Solo, and The Force Awakens. In Hollywood, he was better known as the dialect coach who lived on a houseboat, teaching accents to Chris Hemsworth, Robert Downey Jr., Sean Astin, and Elijah Wood. Music legend John Prine, who was in critical condition with the virus, has now been upgraded to stable condition. But the musician who co-wrote the hit song, I Love Rock and Roll, has died of the virus at age 69. Alan Merrill's grieving daughter urges people to stay home because, quote, people are dying. Among them, country singer Joe Diffie. New Orleans jazz legend Ellis Marsalis, father of six, including Branford and Winton Marsalis, has died from complications of COVID-19. Fountains of Wayne co-founder Adam Schlesinger has died from coronavirus complications at age 52. Schlesinger got Oscar and Golden Globe nominations for writing the title track from the 1997 movie That Thing You Do. His band's biggest hit, Stacy's Mom, was nominated for a Grammy. David Schramm, who co-starred with Tim Daly and Steven Weber on the NBC sitcom Wings, has died at age 73. Schramm played the mustachioed Roy Biggins. It wasn't coronavirus. Schramm died this week of a heart attack. 
and Harlem Globetrotter Curly Neal, who's been battling the after effects of a stroke for years, succumbed this week at the age of 77. Fred Neal got the nickname Curly, of course, from his shaved head, and he played as Curly in more than 6,000 Globetrotters exhibition games, almost entirely against their faux rivals, the Washington Generals. Quoting a member of the Generals talking about Curly, he revolutionized ball handling. Everything you see Steph Curry doing now, it all started with the Trotters. The Trotters, she said, made dribbling a show. When Fred Neal joined the team, he told them he didn't know anything about being funny and went on to be one of the team's biggest stars ever. The network's evening newscasts have seen their ratings continue to crumble over the past years, but because of the pandemic, that's all changed. Families have now joined their elders in watching David Muir, Lester Holt, and Nora O'Donnell night after night. Suddenly, the ratings are way up. NBC Nightly got its biggest numbers in 15 years last week. Even the mostly ignored CBS Evening News saw a big jump in viewership. Their 20 minutes of news, if you count the necessary feel-good story at the end, doesn't begin to cover the detail we cover here. But those shows do give the viewer an easier-to-digest, capsulized version of the day's revelations. It is still the imperfect evening news that we've witnessed since the departure of Cronkite, Jennings, and Brokaw. But when it comes to the evening TV news, everything old is new again. A lot of people saw Janine Pirro in her first night of broadcasting from home, as so many TV personalities and reporters do now. The difference here is Pirro appeared to have been drinking when she appeared after being AWOL during the first segment of her show. Fox, at first, wrote it off as a technical problem with the home broadcasting setup, but when Pirro finally appeared, it appeared she'd been drinking. Fox said, nah, that was the broken teleprompter, and yet... Piro appeared even more intoxicated after each and every commercial break. Piro is now taking some time off from Fox News. There is new entertainment to be had while spending so much time at home. There's also an absence of sports, so what's a sports network to do? ESPN will be airing Disney movies on Fridays. Disney movies about sports. I know I'm running longer than usual here, but there's more stuff to know before you go. It was a professional runner in Bend, Oregon, who had spotted an elderly couple in their car at a Safeway parking lot in tears and afraid to go inside because of the virus and their age. It was 25-year-old Rebecca Mara who took their list inside that Safeway and did their shopping for them. Inside, she found some shelves bare and no hand soap until another shopper sensed her distress and gave her one of the two bars she'd picked up. Help anyone you can, tweeted Rebecca, adding, not everyone has people to turn to. Anheuser-Busch, meanwhile, is offering beer for beagles and other dogs. Teaming with Midwest Animal Rescue, the brewer is offering three months of free suds to anyone who adopts or fosters a dog. The program's called Foster a Dog, Get Bush. The promotion runs through the 25th or until 500 people have adopted or fostered doggies. A donut shop in New York is selling Dr. Fauci donuts. They're frosted donuts with blue sprinkles that feature a striking photo of the renowned infectious disease expert in the middle on edible paper, of course. The National Bobblehead Hall of Fame has announced it's creating a new Fauci bobblehead doll with the proceeds going to buy masks for the American Hospital Association. A San Francisco bakery, meanwhile, is selling quarantine cakes 
that carry messages like, wash your hands. There's also a new dating app for these cloistered times that's called, naturally, Quarantine Together. The idea is to connect in spite of social distancing. In order to get online, however, you have to answer the 6 p.m. message from the site asking if you've washed your hands. Then, the lovelorn can chat with a connection by text for 15 minutes. If that goes well, the video chat opens up. To its credit, this dating app relies less on photos and bios and more about a person's ability to converse. Quoting one of the app's creators, I watch basketball when I get home, but that's not on. Ah, the romance. Meanwhile, a survey of people working from home indicates that 12% of them are keeping their cameras turned off during video calls because they aren't wearing clothing or because they're not appropriately dressed for the meeting. 44% say they dress professionally for their video meetings, and 16% say they've even rearranged their home to give themselves a more professional-looking backdrop. Either way, people don't much like video meetings. 25% say they don't get as much credit for their ideas on video, and 56% say their opinions are not heard as well as they are in person, even without a stitch of clothing. Which takes us to the 2001 Odyssey Club in Tampa, which was ordered closed for 30 days by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, now making his sixth appearance in today's report. So the 2001 Odyssey is presenting its strippers on live stream. The website's actually been up for years and currently has more than 370 subscribers from around the world. Quoting the owner, Broadway shows in New York went dark and they were live streaming. Really? He said, we're no different. The owners of the Hot Water Comedy Club in Liverpool, England, were almost in hot water when it appeared the club was open despite an order that it be closed. In our see-something-say-something world, the club had been reported to police when it featured a live show on Facebook that featured a packed house live audience. Some 20 Merseyside police officers showed up at the comedy joint only to discover it was closed. The Facebook live show was actually clips of comedians from back when the club was still open. The club owner writes it off as a big, wacky misunderstanding. And finally, I leave you this week with our Highway Spill of the Week, and as usual, no one was injured in the making of this kicker. The trucker says he hit a bump, lost control, and hit a highway barrier, causing the truck to overturn, whereupon it burst into flames. Although they were great big rolls used by stores, restaurants, and other businesses, the cargo that burst into flames with the truck was one of our most precious commodities. Toilet paper. It took crews hours to clean up afterward. We're not supposed to cry over spilled milk, but you have permission to bawl your eyes out over this. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.